Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm excited about the day. It's a beautiful sunny day here in the Twin Cities area. The weather's hot and it's uh, it's perfect tennis weather. And so what better guest than to have David Wheaton to get the day started. He is a former professional tennis player, of course, but he's also uh, the host of the Christian Worldview. You can always go over to the christianworldview.org to learn more about David's amazing program. I listen to it every week and his uh, writing and, and speaking and everything else he does. And we're starting, um, this is our second episode of our study through the book of Exodus, so we're right back at it with a powerful series as we study the Bible chapter by chapter. David, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me on today. Good to be with you, Bill. Yeah, now the French Open, I know you've played in it many times yourself, and there's a big chunk of news with Naomi Osaka withdrawing from it. I know, I think she's ranked second in the world right now, so that's kind of a big blow for the tournament but she says that she can't really deal with the anxiety of talking to press. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, she, she like you mentioned, she's one of the best players in the world, number one or number two. And um, she before the, the, the French Open this year, which started about a week and a half ago, she just announced on Twitter, maybe, maybe a tweet she wanted to take back at this point, but just said, you know what, I've decided I'm not going to do post-match interviews at the French Open. It's, it's too stressful. You get off the court and you get asked all these questions. And these interviews, by the way, are compulsory. You you have to do them as part of your commitment sure. uh, to play in these Grand Slam events because you know these sto- these tournaments, after all, are in in a business entertainment business, and they need the press uh, coverage, and that's just part of the deal. It's always been part of the deal for players uh, a- after matches, and so she just decided unilaterally that she wasn't going to do that. Well, I don't think she anticipated what kind of stir th- this would cause and that after the first match she played, well, she didn't do her post-match press conference and she got fined $15,000, which seems like a lot of money, but to her who makes millions of dollars, it's you know just a drop in the bucket for her. But the, the blowback was so strong uh, from so many corners that she basically realized that this whole thing had just, just exploded out of proportion and she actually decided to pull out of the tournament because it was creating such a distraction to other players and so forth that she had all of a sudden, you know, bucked this longstanding policy. And, you know, there's lots more that go into it uh, with Naomi Osaka. Um, she claims to have, you know, mental, um, I can't remember what she, mental health problems or something like this. Um, maybe, maybe not. I have no idea, of course, don't know the answer to that question. But, you know, there's responsibilities that go along with being you know, a top athlete in the world, and that's one of them. And so uh, I'm sure this is going to be a story that's not going to go away for a while. It seems like kind of a little minor thing not to do yeah. a press conference, but it was turned very quickly into a major thing. Yeah. What was it about Roger Federer, too, starting the tournament then deciding to withdraw because yeah. he wants to sort of save up for Wimbledon? That seemed like kind of an odd thing to do. Yeah, that was also a very a very controversial thing. Well, you, you, in one sense, you think, well, he's been off the tour for about a year and a half. He's had two knee surgeries, arthroscopic knee surgeries. Mm-hmm. 
and he, you know, this was his first tournament back, I believe, or one, maybe the second, but he hadn't been playing a lot. And, you know, practicing is one thing, but when you get into these three out of five set matches, I mean, it's a totally different situation, stress on your body, mind, playing this long, you know, three or four hours on clay. Right. I think he won two or three matches. He was doing pretty well, but he was going to be up in the, I think the fourth round or something. And he just, his body wasn't holding up. And so instead of playing the next match, he decided just to pull out of the French open and say, you know what? I'm just, I'm, I don't want to hurt myself. I want to save myself for Wimbledon. Well, in one sense you can understand, you know, he knows his own body. Well, he knows what he can do, but this is not really the athletic ethic, you know, the sporting right. ethic of a professional, you know, you go out there and you play and do as well as you can. And the only reason you pull out is if you're injured and literally right. cannot go on. Right. And so a lot of people thought this, this is disrespectful to the French open. I mean, my goodness, this is a major and he's just acting like it's a warm up for Wimbledon or something. So there was a lot of controversy around that as well. I don't know. You know, I I've always thought back when I was playing, you know, a lot of times you feel terrible, like maybe in the second or third round, you feel like, you know, you're injured and so forth. Things can change though. On a given day, you wake up the next day, you feel a little better and you get through a match and someone else may not play a good match against you. Now you have a couple of days off and you just never know what's going to happen in the future. So I always found it better just to, just to play as well as you could. And if you absolutely could not play, then you pull out. But I really did that very rarely. I just tried to do my best even when I was injured because you play, you play injured a lot. Most yeah. people don't know that about professional athletes. They're playing injured constantly. Yeah. And so um, just you have to learn how to do that. Yeah, not to get too distracted, but I, I love this conversation. What was your longest match at the French Open on the red clay? Oh, oh I, I think one of the first years I played there, I think I was just 19 or 20 years old, I, I played a, a Frenchman named Fabrice Santoro. You probably mm -hmm. maybe even remember that name. He was a really good French player, and he was about my age as well. And I was down two sets to love. And then I ended up winning like eight, six or nine, seven <laughs> Did in the you really? set. And it was against the hometown oh crowd. And this oh match went on forever. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, it, it probably was four hours, yeah. four and a half hours. I don't remember the exact time frame, but that is a long time to be on a tennis court running around. And, and then just there's the physical exhaustion, but there's also kind of the mental side of it as well to concentrate for that long it's, yeah. it's just you know it's 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 a it's a difficult animal when you start playing three out of five sets much different than two out of three yeah no doubt and the the red clay is a little bit slower surface and you have to work uh probably a little bit harder don't you because a lot of balls keep coming back that you wouldn't normally think would come back very true but i think clay is the easiest on your body okay you know, hardcore asphalt is the sure. hardest on oh. your body because you're just pounding around and like a basically like a parking lot type surface, <laughs> but clay, you know, you slide, yeah. but the points are longer. So there, there is that there's the attrition level of, of playing on clay. So you have to be in great shape, but I think just as the, 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 the difficulty, the pain of your joints, it's not as bad as clay as on other surfaces. Yeah. And that wraps up our sport talk for the day. Now back to <laughs> topic back to at hand. Which is our study of Exodus and how ex, the Exodus, the epic Exodus displays the awesome God. Let's uh, maybe just review what we talked about in our opening uh, time together. Yeah, so we started a couple weeks ago just right in Exodus 1, and there's this almost seamless transition that takes place from Genesis right into Exodus. That's why we're doing the book. And um, the, the first few verses of Exodus open up by saying, you know, all the characters that you just read about in Genesis, well, they've all died. And 300 years passes, and there's a new king over Egypt. And he probably wasn't, by the way, an Egyptian pharaoh. There was a short time where a foreign power came in and took over the country. 
So, you know, 300 years later now, of course, Joseph, the main character, is forgotten about. And all of a sudden, these, as they call them, the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, uh, the descendants. Now, we're many generations past, you know, Jacob himself. But all of a sudden, they've gone from being 70 men, 70, who came down from Canaan, welcomed, invited down to, to flee the famine that was taking place over this whole region. Remember, Joseph was in Egypt, and he had saved his own family by bringing them down. He had the, the food plan and so forth during the famine. Well, they'd grown from 70 men to now, 300 years later, there were 2 million people. Wow. Uh, so they'd grown just exponentially. And there was also this huge transition in how they were treated. Remember, back in the time of Joseph and Jacob, they were invited down by Pharaoh. They were given the best of the land. They were welcoming them, welcoming them into Egypt. Now, 300 years later, they're enslaved, and they're in forced labor. So something has dramatically happened. And what's, what's happened is that the Egyptians are now afraid that they're going to be taken over by Israel, or some other foreign power is going to come along, and, and the sons of Israel are going to join with them, and then Egypt's going to lose their country. And to be honest, there's actually legitimate fear um, of that, because if you get outnumbered in your own country, well, that's not good for you. Your culture gets changed, you're, you're, you're in danger of losing your leadership and so forth. So they have, the, I think, a legitimate fear of the, the nation of Israel, although I don't think there's no basis in Scripture that Israel was going to try to take them over. But they develop, the Pharaoh develops this very wicked plan, instructing the, the midwives of all the Hebrews to, to put all the sons, let the girls live, but the sons that are born, put them to death. And the Hebrew midwives do the right thing. We're, we're never to obey government or civil leadership when it conflicts with God's clearly stated will. And of course, this was a, a murderous command that Pharaoh gave them. And so they don't do it. The midwives don't obey, and God blesses them for it. And Pharaoh responds by saying this, okay, if you're not going to kill them, he commands all the people to take the boys that are born and cast them into the Nile River so they're killed. If midwives won't obey, we'll kill them some other way. And ironically enough, I didn't kind of see this last time, but that's where Moses was going to end up in the Nile River as well, too. Isn't it interesting how Pharaoh's yes. edict to cast the boys into the Nile— well, when when Moses enters the story next, <laughs> that's where his mother would end up putting him mm -hmm. in the Nile River in a basket in the bulrushes. And so very interesting start transition from Genesis to Exodus. I love that. Uh, David, how is Moses sensitive to injustice? Well, let me just back up one step to say just how he enters the story, because okay. I, th I think it's important to, to kind of give a a little bit of background on he's the main character in Exodus. He wrote Exodus, yeah. after all. But right away in, in Exodus chapter 2, as we flip the page from Exodus 1 to Exodus 2, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. And that's very significant because the, the, the tribe of Levi would, be the priest, would become the priestly tribe. That was the one tribe that did all the service in the tabernacle and held all the things as they were traveling. They did all the religious service. And so Moses came from this tribe of Levi. So really, he was he was going to be a, not only a leader of the Exodus for the Jewish people back to Canaan or the Promised Land, but he was also going to be a, kind of a priest to them. And it was going to be his older brother Aaron, and I believe his older sister Miriam. So mm -hmm. this family was going to figure very significantly and the way God used them to, to bring them out. And so his mother, it says in verse 2, his mother conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, 
And here's where he goes into the Nile River. She got yeah. she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch, and she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Now, I know anyone listening who's been in a Sunday school class when the younger remembers this story. You know, you have the mother going down to the Nile in a little wicker basket and putting her beloved three-month-old son uh, into the basket to put him, you know, in, in, in the Nile River, you know, along the sides of the river. And his sister, and I, it probably was Miriam, but it doesn't specify at least here, stood at a distance, and it says, to find out what would happen to him. It's like, you're putting a child in, I mean, there's probably crocodiles in there. I mean, what's going to happen to you? Yeah, think about it. How desperate do you have to be as a mother mm-hmm. to take your three-month-old baby and put him into a basket in the Nile River? Wow. Uh, I mean, in other words, the, the other option obviously looked so bad that, that somehow someone was going to come along, the Egyptian was going to kill her child, Moses, that she took an even a huge risk in doing this to her three-month-old son. And so what I think what it says is, though, that her his mother was basically throwing herself upon God's, just trusting God, just trusting that he would do something supernatural. And God did do something new supernatural when the daughter of Pharaoh just happens down by the river with her maidens, finds the basket, has compassion on the child, has pity on him, the Bible says, knows it's one of the Hebrews' children, knows this is the edict to throw the babies, the baby boys, into the river— she has compassion. Moses' sister walks up to her and says, would you like me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse the child? Well, of course, who's that going to be? That's going to be her mother, Moses' <laughs> mother. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the daughter of Pharaoh says, sure, go and do that. And meanwhile, a couple years later, Moses' mother brings back Moses to Pharaoh's daughter because that was the deal. And you can imagine, again, how hard must that be for a mother after nursing her beloved baby son, turn him over? to Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, again, trusting in the sovereignty of God. These people were not fellow believers in God. This was going into an idolatrous environment. I mean, the Egyptians were sun worshipers. So it's really an incredible start to Moses' life. But again, the theme here is God's sovereignty. His plan and purposes are at work to have Moses raised in the Egyptian palace, the highest part of the land, because that would what was what how Moses would be prepared later on to lead his people out of Egypt. Yeah, fantastic start to this uh, study, part two, David. Take a break. When we come back, I want to get back to my question about uh, how is Moses sensitive to injustice? Don't think I forgot because I didn't. David Wheaton is my guest. TheChristianWorldview.org. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. David Wheaton is my guest. We're talking about the book of Exodus. We're going to be doing this for a while, which I can't wait. And I just got a note from one of our producers, Ryan, who's a tennis player, who was just thrilled that I asked the question. So he says, do that more often. (laughs) (laughs) So let's pick up. We're still in Exodus chapters one and two. Let's go back to um, the question of how is Moses sensitive to injustice? I think we start in about verse 11 and 12. Yeah, this is interesting. You remember last time, Bill, we talked about the fact that there are really three periods of 40 years for Moses' life. So there was the first 40 years he basically spent growing up and in, in, into manhood, 
uh, right in Pharaoh's court. <laughs> There's a tennis joke for you, by the way. When did they invent? Uh, did you know that tennis was in the time of Egypt? They played in, in Pharaoh's court. Remember that? <laughs> that's the old joke. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I digress. Okay. Anyway, um, so he grew up in Pharaoh's palace, his court, until he was 40 years old. And so then, then there's this next period of life where it picks up, and you know there's not too much scripture uh, spent on the first 40 years. We know about his birth and a little bit about growing up and Pharaoh's daughter and so forth, adopting him and all that. And then all of a sudden it skips right to in verse 11. It says uh, that in in those days when Moses had grown up, uh, then he went out to his brethren, in other words, fellow Jewish brothers. Uh, not blood brothers, but just, you know, of, of his same ethnicity, mm-hmm. looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, Moses, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So he went out to—at at 40 years old, he went out to, I think, take a firsthand account of what his life would have been like right. if his mother hadn't put him in those reeds and God hadn't saved him and, and brought him into the palace of Pharaoh— you have to remember how Moses grew up, nothing like his fellow Jews. I mean, literally, he grew up in the most—talk about privilege. Yeah. I mean, he's growing up—I mean, there's probably no, hardly anyone wealthier in the whole world at the time uh, than Pharaoh, more powerful. He grew up right there, highly educated, you know, in the, in the best education at the time. Literally, while his own people, just outside, somewhere nearby probably, are in enslavement, forced labor. But the point is, how was Moses sensitive to injustice? He didn't forget about his own people. He was sensitive to injustice, as we should be. Yeah, even if we have our nice life and you know family and so forth, we shouldn't close our eyes to the things going on in the world that are so unjust. And so Moses, right away, all of a sudden, when he turns 40 years old, just in the quick succession bill, he finds himself trying to write three wrongs right away. Like three, there's three conflicts that he puts himself in the middle of right away. And the first one is the one we just read about. He, he sees an Egyptian beating uh, a Jew, and he's so outraged at it that he strikes down the Egyptian, kills him, and hides him. Uh, so that's one thing he does. Whether this is like defense or murder, the Bible really doesn't say, but it seems like it was more like he was defending someone's life and just maybe went one step too far and killed the guy or just turned out that way. We don't know. Then the second thing happens right after that. The, the Bible says the next day he goes out, and now it's not an Egyptian fighting a, a Jewish guy. It's two Jewish, two Hebrews fighting each other. And all of a sudden he sees this, and he says to them, um, you know, you really should—why are you striking each other? But one of them who was in the, in the fight said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And when Moses heard this, he was afraid and knew the matter was had become known, and Pharaoh heard about it. And when Pharaoh heard about it, he tried to kill Moses, and Moses had to literally flee from Egypt, and he travels 200 miles away southeast into the desert into a place called Midian. And so I think this was the first taste that pursuing justice and pursuing even leadership within his own people— he was rejected for this. I mean, his people did not, his own people did not appreciate. This was a taste of what was to come. You fo- you will know, uh, Bill, in this exodus that his people are constantly complaining, mm-hmm. challenging his leadership. This was a little taste of that early on. And finally, the third conflict he gets himself involved in is when he gets to Midian. Again, this is, again, not too much after. These things come in rapid succession in his life. 
he gets to Midian, and he finds that there are some female shepherdesses there. And he sees some male shepherdess, shepherds coming, and they just push the women away to water their own livestock first. Well, again, Moses sees the injustice of this, steps in, and drives those other shepherds away, and they take notice of this. So right away, these quick succession of conflicts shows that Moses has a real desire for just justice mm -hmm. to happen, not injustice. And I think it's a very good lesson for all of us to see how he's not blinded by the life of luxury he grew up in to uh, ignore or just to turn the other way when he sees wrongs being taken place in the world. Yeah. So, David, how uh, has God not forgot his covenant with Israel? Well, it's interesting because, again, we went through the first 40 years of his life, right. and then the, the next 40 years of his life is spent in Midian out in the desert, fleeing. You know, he's away from Egypt now, and really, basically, no one knows who he is now. I'm sure he was a well-known person back in Egypt, growing up in Pharaoh's court and so forth. So, again, the second 40 years of his life are giving very little coverage in Scripture. But all of a sudden, it comes in, in, I believe it's Genesis, or, uh, Exodus 2. It says, in the course of those days, the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. And then there's this incredible line, uh, God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. In other words, the scene all of a sudden, we're going to get to the meat of Exodus here. This is what the rest of the book is going to be about, God hearing the groaning of the people of of Israel. He is going to save them, and he's going to use Moses to save them. But ironically, Moses is 200 miles away. He hasn't been back in Egypt that we know of for 40 years. He's now a shepherd. He's a very kind of unlikely person at this time in his life mm -hmm. uh, to go back and be reacquainted with people, gain their trust, and lead them out of Egypt. But we see here that God is a covenant keeper. Remember this promise we talked about, land, seed, and blessing. That was the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God hasn't forgotten this hundreds of years later. In other words, the people of Egypt are probably, are people of Israel totally desperate and probably totally depressed and discouraged. God hasn't forgot his covenant. He's going to keep his covenant. He's going to save them. He's going to bring them out of Egypt. He's going to use Moses to do that. Mm -hmm. David, when, when God was speaking to Moses from a burning bush, huh. okay, was it really a burning bush? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we'll we'll want to spend a little more time on that next time. Yeah, we're kind of but, getting out of time here. Yeah, it, it, it was a burning bush, and you think, well, how do bushes burn and not get consumed? Because that's what the Bible says, the, the bush was not consumed. So Moses is out in a shepherd, and he has this, he's tending to a sheep, and he sees this on Mount Sinai, where he would, in the future, get the law. We'll talk about that next time, but he's on this mountain, on Mount Horeb, it's called, or Mount Sinai. And he sees this bush on fire, but the bush is not burning up. And so, obviously, this is an incredible sight. So he goes over closer to look, and all of a sudden he finds out that there's, there's a reason it's not burning up, because God is appearing in this burning bush. And so when, <laughs> when Moses finds this out, he obviously he falls to the ground in complete and utter terror. God tells him to remove his sandals, the, the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And this is an example. You asked about the supernatural nature of is this is really burning. This is supernatural. This this can't be explained with, with natural means. You know, there's not some natural phenomenon of, of the buds on the trees looked like they were yeah. burning. 
That's yeah. not the case here. We serve a supernatural God. All right, David. My friend, we're out of time. We'll look forward to picking up next time. Sounds Thanks great, so Bill. David Wheaton's been my guest, thechristianworldview.org. We'll take a short break and be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. It's nice to welcome a new guest to the show, Canadian author Denise Wilson. She's a Bible teacher and an evangelist. She's also a homeschool mom, and she states that the reason for her writing this book was born out of a deep desire to see people come to know and experience Christ as both Savior and Lord. The name of her book is Seven Words You Never Want to Hear, How to Be Sure You Won't. Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. That's really nice to have you on the show. We're in uh, Canada. Are you still live in Canada? Yes, yes. Uh, north of Toronto. We live in the country about an hour north of Toronto. Yeah. So tell me why you were motivated to write this book. I know I kind of just answered the question, but um, tell me more. Well, I'll tell you a more specific answer. That's a general answer. More specifically, I this book was uh, actually began as a letter to my siblings and... Um, I just had a real desire, I just a real heart for them because we all grew up in the same Christian home. And I just really doubt, um, I still doubt whether they truly know the Lord. And I think that um, there's just no fruit, there's no evidence in their life. And I think there's a lot of people, that situation isn't unique. I think there's a lot of people who've uh, been uh, brought up in the church, a lot of people in our churches today who have an understanding of the Bible, they accept the facts of uh, the gospel, they, they believe in it intellectually, but it's uh, never, they've never truly been born again, it's never penetrated their heart. And that's where, that's where this, the, the desire for this came. I started writing a letter. It turned into a book, and I figured if I wrote a book, maybe they'd read it. So that's kind of <laughs> where we're at. That actually hasn't happened, but hey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think of it sometimes, Denise, as people having voted yes for God. But yes. that doesn't mean that they have, you know, understood the deep commitment that they're making and the transformation that goes on in their life based on the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and the transfer, and then and the reason, the way you can know if it's real or not, as the Bible says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Right. Every all things, old things have passed away. All things have become new. And when you don't see that, and there's no change, then you have to um, ask and examine yourself, which is what we're we're told to do: examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Test ourselves, unless of course we don't pass the test. And that's kind of what this book is about. It's encouraging people to take the test to see if their faith is real. Yeah. In the first chapter, you talk about the Christian home syndrome. I, maybe we've already touched on that a little bit. Uh, is, yeah. there, is there more you can share? Sure. Well, before I do that, let me just uh, share a little bit about what those seven words actually are, in case the listeners are wondering, what are those seven words? So they come from Matthew chapter 7, and I'll read you the passage that it comes from. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And those are the seven words. You workers of lawlessness comes after that. But I never knew you. 
depart from me. And those are the seven words that no one wants to hear. And as far as the Christian home syndrome, what I think happens often with many people is that they're um, just lulled into this false sense of security, believing that they have a faith that they don't because somewhere along the line, they prayed a prayer or went forward at an evangelistic meeting. Maybe they were baptized. Um, so they've done these outward things, um, but there's never really been a change in their life. And it's a very scary thing. And I share some stories in my book um, of different people in those situations. And um, I mean, that was my story too. Now I was, uh, I, although I grew up in a Christian home, I prayed the prayer many times. And I used to, after a while, I'd kind of preface or end the prayer with, you know, this time I really mean it, right? Just to be <laughs> sure, right? Like I just, you know, I wasn't sure that the last prayer took. So I kind of prayed it over and over. And I know a lot of people, a lot of people have told me that's their experience. They kind of keep praying the prayer just, just in case, right? And for me, it came to the point, I mean, I was still fairly young when I truly was born again. And I was, and I don't, I still don't know the day or the time, but I kind of, I can gauge it because my life began to change. And I kind of went from all have sinned to I have sinned. And, you know, Jesus died for the world to Jesus died for me. And um, I tell, I tell the story in the first chapter of the book of a, of a guy who kind of, you know, he, he prayed the prayer. He, he'd kind of gone through the motions and, you know, but he realized he didn't, he, he actually didn't, wasn't deceived. He knew he wasn't saved because he just, he just knew he wasn't saved. There was no change in his life. And he was, you know, smart enough to realize that nothing had really happened. And then eventually um, he went to a Christian concert and and he was really moved by something that he heard there. And he really, and he, and he finally kind of did business with God and he truly repented of his sins. And, uh, and the way that he knew that it was real was because he said he began to hate sin and he began to love righteousness. And I think that that's a really good task. And then in his case, what happened was his parents thought he was saved because he told them he was saved. And then one day he was driving in the, you know, his father used to pick him up from school um, and bring him home for the weekends. And, you know, in this car rides, one day his dad said to him, you know what, you know, Simon, you, you know, you've changed. I've seen something different about you. And eventually Simon said to him, well, you know, five months previously, I actually committed my life to the Lord for real. And he was concerned about telling his dad because he was thinking, wow, his dad already thinks he's saved and, you know, he's going to be disappointed. But his dad was thrilled thinking you know, here he was thinking his son was saved and he wasn't. But the, the way his dad knew it was real was because his life changed. And that's the way any of us know it's real. I remember saying to my nephew once, I said, you know, when you really commit your life to the Lord, you're not going to have to tell me because I'll, I'll be I'll know. I'll know. Right. Because there will be evidence. And uh, that's how that's how we know it's real when there's when there's proof in our lives. Indeed. All right. Um, when I think of that. Uh, I, I never knew you depart from me. I always try to connect it in Matthew 7 to Jesus yes. referring to the false prophets who come in sheep's mm-hmm. clothing. Yes. They, they may have an agenda entirely um, to deceive people and to mislead mm-hmm. them, and they can be doing all kinds of uh, prophesying or casting out of demons, and they can, that can be done uh, w- without the Lord in your life for sure. I mean, that can be done with yeah. evil intent. 
Yes, um, and yeah. So when Jesus says, I, I never knew you, uh, depart from me, you evil ones. Well, if we're born again, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. So there, mm-hmm. we, Jesus would never call us evil. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because if you look carefully at that passage in Matthew 7, you notice that the people who are hearing those words are professing Christians. So these words are spoken to people who are calling Jesus Lord, not just once, but twice. They're calling Jesus Lord. They're prophesying. They're casting out demons. They're doing mighty works in Jesus' name. So these are people who clearly think that they're they're going to make it, right? Like they're shocked that they're being told, I never knew you. Um, so, I mean, I have two chapters in my book. One's called The Gospel of Greed and one's called The Gospel of Self, and it deals with these false prophets, people who are, you know, out there doing things in Jesus' name. They have large followings. They have big churches, um, <clears throat> but they're 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 not truly born again. And you know, the Bible says there are many. And it's you know, you think. I mean, if all you have to do is repeat a simple the simple words of a prayer, then why did Jesus say that entering the kingdom of God is hard? And that the road is narrow and there are few who find it, you know, like it's, it's, it's interesting because there's so many that are on that broad road thinking they're on the narrow road and it's sad and it's very, very concerning. And, and just the fact that there's just so many on that road. Mm-hmm. Denise, I'm not uh, sure if I'm connecting the dots that they in Matthew seven are, yeah. are people who are, um, indicate that they're professing Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I see that in the passage. Well, they're calling Jesus Lord, right? Well, that, so, yeah. Yeah. But if they're, they're a false prophet that right. Jesus is saying, you're, you're evildoers, then they may have no understanding at all. And they may have no agenda other than to do things for their own sake or their own prosperity. Yes, I mean, I think there could be both scenarios. I think there could be people who are genuinely deceived themselves, or they could be people who are um, truly know that they're deceiving and they're trying to deceive others. I mean, workers of lawlessness is people who are doing, you know, not living correctly because, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who believe themselves to be saved, who are living lives of disobedience, and um, but they think that they're still okay, right? I think that there are, Churches are full of people who, there's lots of them, I shouldn't say full of people, but there are a lot of people going to church Sunday after Sunday, and, and nowadays it's becoming even more clear, they, they're, they're hanging on to beliefs that Jesus clearly says, you know, is, are wrong, but they still would profess to be believers, right? They, they, they're living lifestyles that are contrary to um, biblical teaching, and yet they profess to be believers, and uh, I think of, like with obedience, the Bible says it, we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. But there's people who are living lifestyles of disobedience. And yet they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, you know, this is still OK. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think those ones that they're in danger of hearing those words, they think they're OK. They think they're OK, but yeah. they're not. Well, I don't think a truly born again person will ever hear those words. Away from no, the absolutely door. not. No, okay. no, absolutely not. They're pro- they're professing, right? To right. profess means you speak it with your mouth, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, if you're truly born again, you're never going to hear those words. But you can speak the words with your mouth, 
but your with with your with your with your tongue you can confess him, but with your actions you can deny him. Like it says in Timothy, right? Mm-hmm. You profess him with your mouth, but by your deeds you you deny him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, never a bad idea to examine your own beliefs. Maybe I know the book does uh, some help with some practical ways to do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's lots of tasks. I mean, like I've already mentioned, obedience is one, and fruit is another. And you know, is there is there fruit? Um, or is there evidence of genuine of genuine repentance in your life? And uh, and well, going to repentance, repentance is another thing. You know, like you can't be saved if you're not willing to turn from your sin. Now, obviously, you know, we're none of us is perfect, and there's always going to be we're always going to fight our you know with our our flesh, and there's going to be that battle. But uh, but there should be a desire. There has to be a desire to to live and to please God, you know, to do the right thing. And if, as long as we're battling, we're, we're, we're okay, right? We're, we're striving to please God. But when we're content and we're settling for the, the sin in our life without, um, uh, you know, with, with our consciences are okay with it, you know, like in first John, there's all kinds of tasks of true faith. First John you know, am I walking in the light? You know, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Do we admit and do we confess our sin? Are we obedient? Do we love fellow believers? Do we love the world? Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. And it's just, I think it's the general trend of our life. It's not it's not that we're perfect, but our lives are trending towards we're seeking to please God. We're seeking to honor him with our lives rather than to um, to feed our flesh. That should be the general path of a of a true believer. And that that's test. That's that would be a test. And like when Paul in Corinthians, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And that was written to a church. So obviously, as uh, all who profess faith in Christ should be examining themselves and using the tests that are given in Scripture to see if it's real or if they're if they're if they're deceived. Mm-hmm. And I give an yeah, I give another story in the book of which is a really interesting one. I share the story of Charles Washer. I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Washer, evangelist. I do, yeah. And, yeah. Can, can yeah. I, can I hear the yes. story on the other side of the break? Absolutely. Terrific. Sure. Yeah. I, um, Denise Wilson is my guest. Her book is Seven Words You Never Want to Hear. How to be sure you won't. We'll take a real short break and be back. back to the show. Denise Wilson is my guest. I already have a um, midterm report card from a listener, Denise. Uh, mm-hmm. They said, this lady is spot on. How do you like that? Oh, wonderful. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Denise, Appreciate that. <laughs> Denise has written a book called Seven Words uh, You Never Want to Hear, How to Be Sure You Won't. Um, you were just going to tell me a story about Mr. Washer. Yes, actually his wife. Charles. Oh, so, okay. so, so his wife, so I, I heard this story, actually somebody 
while I was in the middle of writing this book, actually right when I started, this book took me four years to write. It was a long project, but early on the book, the title of my book was going to be examine yourself. And then along the way it changed, but um, a, a friend introduced me to, to Paul Washer and sent me uh, a video of his, his message called Examine Yourself, which was very powerful. If no one's, if you haven't listened to it before, I, I encourage people to listen to it. But he also sent me the testimony of Chara Washer. And in her story, this is really interesting. She was brought up in a Christian home. She went to a Christian school. She was baptized. And um, then uh, she wanted to be a missionary. And she married Paul. They were missionaries in uh, Peru for 12 years, and um, they then they came home. And, at, and Paul used to go around preaching a message called How to Know for Sure That You're a Christian. And she would listen to that message, and he would preach it in different churches, so she heard it multiple times. For years, she was actually listening to it. And in her story, she says that after a while, she would like squirm in her seat, and she'd listen to it and think, I don't think I can pass this test. So here we have a person. She was 32 years old. She was a, she'd been a missionary, um, brought up in a Christian home. And she, she eventually, she went to the book of first John and she sat down and she did business with God. And she realized that she actually truly was not saved. And she, she, she realized that she hadn't really truly repented of her sin. She never really saw herself as a sinner. She just she kind of missed that step. She believed it intellectually. She wanted to do the right thing, but she she never she didn't have that passion for the word of God. She there were a lot of missing pieces and she connected it. She realized it and she repented and she truly got saved. And even her friends, she says, didn't believe her. Like, oh come on, of course you were a Christian. But she goes, Listen, I knew my heart and um and she believed, you know, and she says that she wasn't saved and that she was saved at that time. I mean, and that's kind of like shocking. Wow, somebody in that situation. And um, the thing is, you know, the Bible says there are many, many who are going to hear those words. So, which is why we need to examine ourselves. We said, the Bible says, don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself. And I think, um, like, I think it's, it's easy for parents to, um, to want to believe so badly that their children are saved. They think, you know, Johnny, when he was five, he prayed that prayer. He's been living, you know, for himself and he's been, you know, doing things that he shouldn't be doing. And but, you know, when he was five, he prayed that prayer. And I think it's so easy to want to believe that just because somebody prayed a prayer and there's with no evidence since then that we just. Oh, but there's I know that they're saved. They're just backslidden. Right. I just think we have to be careful not to encourage people in that path to just kind of, yeah, you're saved. You're saved. A friend of mine told me that when she was eight, she got saved. And when she was 12, she doubted. And she went to her mom and she said, mom, I'm not sure if I'm really saved. And instead of her mom saying, oh, but dear, I know you're saved because I sat with you. I prayed with you. Her mom said, let's go to the book of first John and let's, let's do the test together. And I think that there's great wisdom in that because we, we need to be sure. Mm -hmm. Didis, let's talk about repentance. What does repentance really mean? And is there a difference between repentance and confession? Yeah. Well, repentance is a change of mind, literally. But I mean, it's more than that. It's a change of mind and it's a change of heart that leads to a change in behavior. And like I mentioned at the beginning, when you think of the verse, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Um, and, you know, repentance, we, when we repent of our sins, we there there will be a change and confession on the other hand means <clears throat> excuse me re confession means literally to agree 
um, to agree with God. Like, so when I confess my sins, I agree with God that what he calls sin really is sin. That's, that's true confession is that agreement that um, what God says is, is, is sin is really, is really sin. And so they're both really important pieces um, in our salvation. And, you know, we're, we're told to examine ourselves and we're told to be careful not to be deceived because sometimes um, what we think, we think that we're okay when we're not like, I think of an example, really, really, um, what's the word? Like a, a shocking example in the Bible, like a um, severe example would be Judas. Like you think about Judas and after Judas uh, had betrayed Jesus, the Bible says that he was seized with remorse and he turned, he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned and I've betrayed innocent blood. So you, you look at that passage and you think, wow, that sounds like repentance. Judas felt remorse. He acknowledged his sin. He said, I'd sinned. He made restitution. Yet the Bible calls him the son of perdition and perdition means eternal damnation. Um, so that, that, that passage, that, that story of Judas kind of highlights how things aren't always what they appear. Like, cause you know, there's, uh, I think of the, the Bible, the verse in Corinthians, it says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, um, and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings, brings death. So there's, you know, godly, there's real true repentance. And then there's like a worldly sorrow. Like I'm sorry, I'm so sorry that this happened. I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry I got caught or whatever. And so Judas had some kind of a, you know, a, a realization, I shouldn't have done this. I've sinned. He acknowledged his sin, you know, so he kind of confessed his sin. I'm sorry I did. I shouldn't have done this. And yet he's the son of perdition. So, you know, we, we, we have to examine our hearts and see that there's true repentance. There's a true desire um, in us to honor God and to please God. And um, yeah, it's just really serious. It's really serious stuff. And I think there's just, it's just easy to be deceived. And that's why we need to go to scripture and, and compare ourselves with scripture. Yeah. Denise, with just a couple of minutes left, maybe we can talk about um, how to be sure that we never hear those seven words. I never knew you depart from me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we want to be sure. Right. And uh, like I say, Absolutely. there's lots of tests in the book of first John um, and like obedience Am I, am I, am I desiring to obey the Lord? Because if we're not, then, then the Bible says we can be sure we know if we obey his commandments. So on the opposite, we can, we can't be sure if we're, if we're living a life of disobedience. So that's a really clear test. Um, Fruit we got, you know, is there fruit in our lives? Do I love my sin or do I hate my sin? Um, Do I love the world? I think I mentioned some of these already. Do I love the world? Um, am I living in habitual sin? No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Now, obviously we're going to sin, but it's, that shouldn't be the primary marker on our life that we're in habitual, um, state of sin. And there's lots of passages. There's Galatians, Ephesians, Corinthians, um, and Romans all give lists of things that say, if this is the life, this is your lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so don't you realize those who do these things will not, but the Bible then says such were some of you and it lists all kinds of things, worshiping idols, sexual sin, adultery, prostitution, all these things. If this is your lifestyle, the Bible says you will not inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. So 
we can be saved and we can be, if we're desiring to please him and we want to know, we just go to the scriptures. And I give lots of tests in the book. I have several chapters on all the different tests that you can take. And the Bible's full of them too. Mm-hmm. So just encourage people to examine themselves. Denise, my last question has got that retail value of $64. So you wrote this book. Did your siblings what? read it? And how did they respond? Retail value of $64. You know, that expression, you're from Canada, so the old $64 question, which is just an axiom. So anyway, I'm just curious, did your siblings read the book, and how did they respond? Well, no. Um, The short answer is... I gave it to I gave it to my nieces, my nephews, my siblings, all for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. I, I know one of my brothers did read it um, and said it, it was good, but, but he's. I haven't had that conversation with him to kind of elaborate because there's a lot of things in there that would kind of point a finger at him. So I'm very curious to have that conversation. <laughs> my other siblings have not read it. Not that I know because they've yeah. never said anything. So, I mean, I, I would love them to, I have had people who have read it and it has touched them and they've, you know, it's caused them to, to ask those serious questions. So, I mean, that's my desire. I just want people to, to think now because it's too late later, right? It just yeah, encourages right. people to examine themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had Jay Warner Wallace on it a whole bunch of times and he, you know, says that he's got still a family full of non-believers, atheists, and Mormons. So, you know, it's yeah. pretty typical. Yeah. 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 Do I, do I have two minutes? I just share one oh, quick no, no. thing. Or do we I don't, we don't no? even have 30 seconds. Sorry. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but thank you so That's much fine. for coming on the show. It's, you've been a delight. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate you it. You bet. Denise Wilson's been my guest. Her book is Seven Words You Never Want to Hear. How to Be Sure You Won't. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we have a full hour with Dr. Mark Muska. So it's Ask the Professor. Get your questions ready. Send them over via text anytime, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.